the Lux podcast. For today's podcast surrounding antibiotic resistance, we are very lucky to have brought in Dr. Eric Brown, who's a distinguished university professor at McMaster University in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences and member of the Michael G. DeCroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. His lab focuses on bacterial survival strategies to contribute to development of new antibacterial therapeutics. So Dr. Brown, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? And finally, what are your current research interests? Yeah, that's a great, great summary of what I do. Actually, I'm a native of the area. I went to high school in Dundas and, and did my undergraduate uh, and graduate degrees at the University of Guelph. Postdoc at Harvard Medical School uh, in Boston and, and uh, spent some time in the biotech sector uh, in Boston before, uh, before coming to McMaster in, uh, in 1998. <clears throat> time in Boston really... I think it made an indelible mark on me, um, certainly working in the pharmaceutical sector. Um, my research program at McMaster is, is really geared toward uh, coming up with new approaches to discovering new antibiotics. Um, we've you know, focused over the years on coming up with unique uh, assays and angles um, to, uh, to look uh, under stones, unturned mostly. Uh, for uh, for new antibiotics, um, and I've spent a fair bit of my time uh, assembling unique infrastructure at McMaster to uh, to screen um, chemicals on a you know on a scale of hundreds of thousands, uh, looking for uh, looking for that needle in a haystack that might be the next um, kernel of a, of a new antibiotic. Yeah, that sounds good. So before we dive deeper into the research focus on bacterial survival strategies, which you've been focusing on, would you be able to give our listeners a brief explanation of what exactly antibacterial or antibiotic resistance is? Yeah, I mean, dominantly, these are, um, you know, they, they, they come in a couple of flavors, but these are, you know, it's really about, uh, you know, treatment failure uh, in the clinic, ultimately. And um, there's a bit of a misconception sometimes in the public about what antibiotic resistance is. A lot of folks think it's about, uh, you know, the human, the host uh, for the infection uh, being resistant to the action of a drug. <clears throat> I think people are, you know, thinking about how some drugs kind of lose their effectiveness uh, over time, um, you know, that are directed at human physiology. But in this case, we're talking about an antibiotic um, losing its effectiveness in the clinic. Uh, on account of the, um, the invading bacterium uh, now resisting the killing action of that antibiotic. So uh, they come in a, different, a few different forms. There are, um, there's lots of sharing of genes uh, among bacteria in the, in, in the environment. Uh, and that means that, um, uh, that a, a, a kind of an exotic form of drug resistance that develops um, usually by acquisition of a gene from the environment, because um, these ultimately these resistance determinants really are, are mostly already in the environment. Um, but of course they're passed around among, among bacteria and then among, among patients and staff and so on in hospitals. Uh, and they are selected for by the use of the antibiotic. And so, um, you know, they can become <clears throat> uh, problematic, um, you know, in a clinical setting, because you have, um, um, say uh, a, a, a plasmid, right? This is the genetic information um, born on DNA, which is in a um, not on the chromosome, but on a, on a, um, a mobile genetic unit um, known as a plasmid uh, that can be passed among bacteria. 
Um, uh, you might, for example, have penicillin resistance um, residing on a plasmid that, that can, lead to, uh, can lead to treatment failure if that plasmid is in the, um, in the bug um, that, um, that we're trying to, we're trying to um, eliminate. Um, that's one kind of antibiotic resistance. It's, um, it's coded kind of in, it's coded uh, genetically and rather specifically for each antibiotic. Um, and other kinds are sort of intrinsic mechanisms of resistance to some, uh, to antibiotics among many pathogens. Um, uh, the bugs have clever ways of ridding uh, toxins from uh, inside of the bacteria by, for example, pumping out um, a, an antibiotic that might enter uh, a bacterium um, or preventing its, uh, its entry in the first place using um, kind of clever permeability barriers that are um, in the cell wall and cell surface of, of some bacteria. Uh, and so you have these kind of two kinds of, of um, you know, you have sort of inherited resistance uh, among bacteria on mobile genetic elements, and you have intrinsic uh, resistance that, um, that is common to certain bacteria. And you may have heard of bacteria like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, um, Asnatobacter baumannii. Um, the latter became sort of uh, famous or infamous from um, uh, from infections that happened in soldiers um, in the in the Iraqi wars, uh, and um, these bugs are um, actually environmental microbes by nature, and they're opportunistic in their ability to infect humans, uh, and they are um, bacteria that are that are remarkably intrinsically resistant um, to many of the antibiotics we use. Yeah, it's something that definitely sort of gets worse over time as well when you consider the things like the inherited resistances. Philip, do you have the next question? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking we're taking a look at these genetic factors and these more biological ways that they acquire resistance or have intrinsic resistance. Looking at your papers, there was one paper about the global impact of antibiotic resistance, and we thought that was really interesting because a lot of times in science, we look at those like very specific mechanisms, but taking a look at that broader overview of what are the global impacts of antibiotic resistance, and would you be able to elaborate a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I, we probably don't need reminding, right, that um, the infectious disease in a time of, of, uh, of a pandemic, right, that infectious disease knows no borders. Uh, and so, you know, you can have um, an outbreak of drug resistance that happens, you know, in one country, and it, um, it travels very, very quickly to another, right? It just, just involves, you know, one person getting on a plane um, and then, um, you know, and then maybe winding up in a clinical setting or, or even just, you know, person to person and, 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 you know, through benign contact. Kind of what's unique um, maybe to the field of antibiotics is, um, you know, the level of stewardship that exists in, in kind of different, um, different countries. Um, you have, for example, in, in China and in India, um, these tend to be where most of the antibiotics in the world are manufactured. There's some really fascinating studies, uh, you know, drug resistance that resides in the wastewater of these, you know, massive uh, antibiotic production uh, factories. Uh, you have, um, you know, issues in, in some developing countries of, um, of, you know, rather poor stewardship of, um, of antibiotics. You know, you may have been to your GP and said, you know, I've got a, <clears throat> I've got a, you know, a, a sore throat. I, you know, I really would like an antibiotics to fix it up. And, uh, and maybe your GP in the Hamilton area kind of resists prescribing 
says, you know, we, you know, I, I think you probably don't have a bacterial infection. It's probably a viral infection. Uh, you know, we'll do a throat swab to try to try to confirm that and kind of hold off on the use of an antibiotic. Uh, of course, there are many countries in the world where you can just go and say, you know, I, I've got a tickle in my throat and I need an antibiotic and you just go buy it over the counter, um, you know, without any difficulty. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is a global problem, of course, because what, what's happening in one place is, is, you know, very likely to cause trouble in another place. Um, you know, there's a really kind of interesting um, tagline happening these days in COVID to kind of encourage um, developed nations to really support, you know, vaccination efforts and, and efforts in care in, uh, in developing nations. Um, that goes something like, you know, we're not safe until all of us are safe. Um, and I think that's also a very, you know, important part of the discussion um, in terms of antibiotic drug resistance, right? Just thinking about the way antibiotics are used everywhere, um, the way healthcare is done um, in all these nations. And, and um, you know, it's one thing for us to sort of point fingers at developing nations for the way that they use antibiotics. Um, and it's another thing for us, I think, to recognize the complexity, you know, of their healthcare systems and, you um, you know, and how marginalized those populations might be in terms of, of you know, they're really just trying to find, um, in some cases, um, some really desperate solutions to some very difficult healthcare situations. So, yeah, that, I mean, that, that review is really about the complexity of, um, of, of, of all of that. And there's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged, though, and there is a lot of discussion going on about, about all this um, with the development of new of, uh, of new antibiotics, which is which is also a complicated thing. Yeah, thinking about global health is actually just so important when you actually think about, you know, the inequitability you see between nations and the vast, vast gaps between what we see between, um, you know, different regions of the world, right? Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of I do a lot of, you know, studying in geography and the such. So this really, really interests me. And that's uh, sort of tying into our next question. So a lot of like epidemiologists and demographists um, have proposed a sort of, you know, the demographic transition model where infectious disease sort of beca has become much, much less prevalent over the last couple decades. But some actually propose that uh, even though chronic disease is more important than infectious disease now, minus pandemics and such, um, that there will be an, an uprise in infectious disease in coming, going into the future. Um, What's your take on that? Do you think that's actually going to happen? Yeah, I mean, there's a report. <clears throat> um, I mean, several several reports have been done, you know, in the last five um, or ten years or so um, on you know where things are likely to go uh, with antibiotic resistance uh, in the future. Uh, mostly about trying to make arguments uh, for uh, you know public funds being being put into the problem of of antibiotic drug discovery. Um, these are intertwined, right, with the problem that um, there's a relatively poor business model for antibiotic drug discovery currently because these medicines actually cure people. Um, pharma companies would rather make medicines for um, chronic uh, conditions. Those are those are the ones that really pay off. Um, furthermore, you know, there are problems of drug resistance, but they're spotty. Um, and that patient in the ICU who's got a multi-drug resistant infection, which can't be cured by antibiotic, uh, by any antibiotic is, is relatively um, uh, rare uh, in most, um, most healthcare systems. 
And, um, and what that means is that if a designer antibiotic is discovered, it's not going to be used very much. Uh, and where all systems are really about um, reimbursement for volume uh, of drug use um, to the pharma companies, it's a, it's, a, it's a really difficult business model for them. Uh, furthermore, if you come up with a super antibiotic, um, the first thing the healthcare system is, gonna, system is gonna respond with is that's fantastic. Um, let's almost never use that because we'll wanna make sure that that's available um, to the patient with the multi-drug resistant infection. Um, and you can't think of another therapeutic area where that's the case. I mean, if you come up with a designer anti-cancer drug, it's just gonna, it's going to be first line therapy and it's going to be um, you know, used like crazy. Um, <clears throat> uh, Frank, I'm, I'm trying to remember where I was going with this, but this was like kind of a long uh, kind of background, I think to your, um, to a question that, that, that was about what is the future of um, you know antibiotic resistance, and you know if we try to project out uh, from a situation now where you know these life-threatening infections, say in the ICU, are relatively rare, um, you know where we might be by say 2050. And there've been there's been a lot of work uh, in this. Um, you know, most notably uh, a piece that was done, I guess, about five years ago for the British uh, government. Um, you know, that suggested that. Um, you know, the cost of antibiotic drug resistance um, to the healthcare system will eclipse cancer um, by, uh, by 2050. Uh, the, um, <clears throat> there are some other good um, kind of reports not so long ago around trying to project out, uh, you know, for, for very simple surgeries, things like C-sections, biopsies, um, some cancer chemotherapies where antibiotics are used routinely, you know, what happens if, if, if the first line antibiotic becomes 10% less effective, what happens if it becomes 25% and so on. And these are really pretty head turning results, right. To think about how many more infections, how many more patients affected. Um, these are things that, you know, we're, we live long enough, so, you know, all of us are going to need um, these things, you know, knee and hip replacements, et cetera. And, um, you know, for living in a world where, um, you know, prophylactic antibiotic therapy that accompanies these, um, you know, trivial medical procedures, uh, if these things, you know, stop working even 25% of the time, that's just a terrifying prospect, right, for a patient who, who needs something relatively trivial done. So, yeah, there's been a lot of good study on this, and um, uh, it's not looking very good, frankly. Uh, good for the bacteria, not so good for the humans. So given that the future is not looking too kind, um, maybe you, you can tell us about what you're looking into because you're kind of taking a whole new perspective in your lab, right? Yeah, I mean, we're doing a bunch of different things. And, and this is kind of work that's been ongoing for, uh, you know, uh, since I started my lab um, in, in 98 at McMaster. We've been, we've been trying to think about about, you know, really kind of fresh and new approaches to the discovery of antibiotics. So I, I just told you about the obstacles to the development of new antibiotics, which are, you know, kind of related to the, you know, economics of the situation. But, you know, the truth is there's been a fair bit of discovery that's gone on, even in the area of modern um, antibiotic drug discovery. And there've been no new, truly new antibiotics discovered uh, to treat gram-positive infections in more than 30 years. Um, to treat gram-negative infections in more than 50 years. 
So we've got um, a lot of um, generic ancient drugs, right, which have been sort of tweaked uh, incrementally over uh, over time to kind of stay just kind of one step ahead of drug resistance. Um, and um, and it really is just a step because it, it you know drug resistance seems to overtake these these um, you know tweaked but unoriginal classes very very quickly. The um, the approach of my group has really been to kind of, you know, focus on truly new um, antibiotics, that is, you know, new mechanisms and new chemical classes. Uh, and to do that, we've been thinking about aspects of bacterial physiology that, you know, that have not been drugged before. Um, so all of the existing antibiotics work on things like bacterial cell wall synthesis, that's the penicillins. Um, um, DNA replication, think about drugs like fluoroquinolone, ciprofloxacin is an example. Um, um, uh, protein synthesis, you can, you know, think about the aminoglycoside antibiotics, um, uh, things like um, canamycin that, 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 that's used a lot in the research lab, um, and, um, and RNA synthesis. So it's a, it's a, um, uh, a relatively narrow slice of physiology. Um, all antibiotics have been discovered uh, really except for one, and that's the sulfa drugs. Uh, all antibiotics that, that, um, that halt the growth of bacteria um, have this uh, common feature of being discovered uh, using rich microbiological media. Um, back in the day, that was an extract from, um, from meat uh, um, that, that ultimately was, um, uh, you know, it came down to a kind of more complex recipe of, um, of amino acids and starches and stuff that's used in modern day media. And that is, and that media is, is set down by the clinical laboratory standards Institute, um, that, you know, supports, uh, uh susceptibility testing of, of bacteria, you know, all, all over the, the, um, all over this continent, um, very similar standards in Europe. Uh, <clears throat> and um, those are all very rich uh, microbiological medias. Uh, you know, drug discovery is always necessarily about, you know, finding something that kills in a dish and then works in a mouse and then ultimately um, will uh, will cure an infection in a human. And, and mostly what we've been doing for the last, you know, 20 or more years is, is really trying to question that in a big way and say, you know, is that really the way to come up with truly new drugs? Um, and so I've done things like, you know, nutrient limited conditions as a way to search um, for uh, new targets in bacteria and new um, chemicals that would be active um, against bacteria under nutrient limited conditions. Um, we've, you know, we've thought about, we've looked at experimental systems like, um, it, you know, using uh, blood serum uh, as a substrate for growth, uh, looking at the growth of of bugs inside of macrophages. Uh, so really trying to kind of widen uh, our appreciation of, of kind of what all the possible targets are uh, in a bacterium beyond those things that I mentioned. Um, and, uh, and doing that uh, in part at least by um, thinking about experimental systems that kind of um, might look a little bit more like uh, life in the host um, as opposed to um, uh, you know, life on a, uh, on an extract of, uh, of roast beef. I really find it interesting that you mentioned rich 
microbiological mediums and just finding potential targets in that, or even new environments to <laughs> expose them into and finding those therapeutic targets. Along the same vein, what do you think of bacteriophages, which are found in different rich medium like that as well? And how realistic is it for them to be a potential target for therapeutics that are scalable? Yeah, the bacteriophage thing is really interesting. Um, and they've been used with, you know, anecdotal success uh, recently. Um, and there are some trials going on and there's some, some little companies that have kind of, um, uh, started up in this area. It's a really ancient, um, uh, therapy, uh, that, um, among other places was, has really been used a lot in, um, uh, in, uh, in Russia, um, the Georgia province, I think of Russia is a place where a lot of this has been done. And, um, you know, they have large phage banks in places where this has been used successfully, um, uh, to, to treat, um, topically is, is I think, you know, kind of the most common and most successful areas, but, um, these been used, these have been used, um, uh, systemically as well. Uh, and, uh, increasingly folks are, you know, talking about phage banks for systemic therapies. Um, it's a, it's a tough road to hoe, frankly. Um, uh, one of the most interesting things about phage is that, right, uh, so we talk about drug resistance, resistance to phage arises very, very quickly, uh, much more quickly than, than to antibiotics. And it's kind of a, there's this natural, um, um, you know, fight between phage and bacteria that's, you know, that's gone on for, uh, forever. And, um, uh, and so it's important to use, uh, cocktails of phage to, um, to kind of get around resistance to just one of them. So, so one phage is, is almost never used um, as, a, as a treatment strategy. Uh, it's a cocktail of phage usually. And, and then you've got sort of your plan A cocktail. And when that starts to fail, you go to plan B. Um, so it's a very different way of, you know, thinking about it. It's not, it's not so much, you know, um, you know, going to a bottle of uh, oral, oral, uh, oral medicines, right? That you can sort of take uh, with ease much more patient tailored, uh, much more about, you know, finding cocktails that work on, you know, isolates from the patient. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And I, and I, honestly, I think that's why we're seeing a renaissance in, uh, in phage therapy. Got to take every lead you can get, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so we were, we did find that sort of concept, but just out of curiosity, in, in case there are any, are there any other sort of large scale, you know, technologies or methods that we can use to fight these um, antibiotic resistant bacteria other than, you know, vaccines, having good hygiene or developing more antibiotics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, stewardship is certainly a really important part of the equation and that, and that's a, um, you know, I talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, that's the idea of, you know, really using widely this resource that we currently have. Uh, and um, it's, uh, you know, this is being widely practiced, um, you know, I dare say in the West, but, but, but we still have a ways to go, right? Even, even in our own um, uh, you know, even in the way medicine is practiced in a place like Canada, there is, there is, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I am told by, you know, clinicians, particularly GPs that, you know, a patient comes into the office and they, they really want, a, you know, they, I mean, they're feeling awful and they want to fix to this problem and they want to walk out of the office with something other than, a, you know, a pat on the back that, you know, they just need to go home and, and eat some chicken soup. 
so, so there, there is tremendous pressure and I think, um, a tendency to over, 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 uh, prescribe, um, you know, and you have, you have that to, to, you know, um, to, you know, massive amounts of antibiotics and the effluent of manufacturing companies, you know, to, um, to localities where, you know, antibiotics can be procured, you know, anywhere, anytime. Um, and then you have, uh, you have a really unique situation right now where you have a global pandemic. Um, <clears throat> and, um, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of misinformation um, and, um, and uh, a lot of um, uh, self-medication and, and especially in these places, right, where you can get this kind of stuff uh, with ease. Uh, and then some, you know, legitimate use of, um, of antibiotics, uh, you know, during our pandemic, um, use, for example, of azithromycin, right, as a, um, it was identified kind of early on as a, as a key antibiotic in, um, uh, that ultimately didn't kind of prove out as, as being, um, you know, so effective, but certainly even with, and COVID turns out to be not just kind of like your typical flu, which is, you know, respiratory oriented. It's got many more aspects to it, but there are some really, you know, there are a significant number of patients that wind up in, in, um, in ICU who develop lung infection. Uh, and what that's meant is an explosion in the use of antibiotics as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, it, sometimes it's indicated and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's just used anyway. Um, but um, yeah, they're, 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 you know, people are kind of modeling this. I mean, maybe we're back to that earlier question now, you know, what, what does this mean for the future? And I, it isn't good, right? Um, uh, so maybe we can add that to the list that we should avoid pandemics, um, right? Because that's also going to just drive up antibiotic use. So in terms of antibiotic use, given the current situation, even if we do limit it through different public health strategies, there, there's this like talk about super bugs and how they can become prevalent in hospital settings, especially. Uh, so do you think that there is something we can do about that superbug situation going forwards. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know it's been identified among other things that hand washing is just hugely important. Um, you know, and that's about staff members right in hospitals going from patient to patient. Um, uh, you know, this is all time and time again been been shown to be just enormously effective. Um, but it's uh, you know it's kind of in the realm of uh, I think uh, you know human psychology and habits, right? How to make sure um, that healthcare providers, you know, you know, place a, um, place a high importance on that. And, and, um, and of course, you know, the more overwhelmed people get with, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the healthcare setting, the more staff are, are, you know, under pressure and overwhelmed, the less likely they are to, 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 to do these things. And, you know, back to this pandemic thing. I mean, it's just it's, it's just in the news every day, right? How 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 uh, overworked and and um, and underappreciated um, you know most of our healthcare workers are right now. So so it's really a this is this is one of these things. It just sounds like the simplest thing, right? Um, to um, to encourage hand washing, but um, and I'm told what happens is that you know there's often a blitz in a in a hospital. Um, in some clinical setting, to, you know, lots of new signage and lots of emphasis on it. And, and then eventually though, it kind of falls off and, and so too does the hand washing. It's really hard to stay vigilant. It's hard to stay up on it, but um, probably a good, again, a good area of, of research in terms of 
um, the human psychology and, and maybe cues and ways that we can encourage this kind of stuff. Yeah, obviously we're no, we're no psychology experts, but somehow we got to find a way to just do these really, really simple things on a large scale that can help, you know, fix everything or not, not necessarily fix everything, but make things a lot better. Um, and I know we're not really psychology experts here, but do you have, what do you think about how to combat um, sort of medical misinformation in, in the context of COVID, but also in the future, it's definitely going to come up again related to antibiotic resistance. So how do we sort of fight misinformation? Yeah, I mean, this is just, I, you know, I just would never have predicted that we would be in the situation we are in right now. I mean, it's really hard not to point at the COVID thing. Canadians, by and large, are doing pretty well. But, but I, you know, I think probably one in 20 Canadians are, you know, you know, maybe more than just a little vaccine hesitant. Um, and, um, I, you know, I just, I would never have predicted that if you'd asked me a question like this two years ago. I certainly would not have predicted, you know, what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Um, uh, you know, I was in Croatia not long ago. They, they've got a vaccination rate that leveled off at about 40% about three months ago. Um, and it's a place where there's just enormous distrust of the government. And, and that is really at the root um, of their, um, of their vaccination problem. Uh, and I dare say that's the, at the root of the vaccination problem in, you know, in our, in our huge neighbor to the South in the United States. I just think there's a very significant number of people who've, who've made a connection between government and this public health measure. Uh, and, um, and yeah, I mean, if, 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 when politics gets entwined with public health, you know, God, God help our public health. Um, because it's, you know, there's just this, these are polarizing, um, uh, ideologies in, in just about every, every, um, every country in the world. And I, and I think that's really the success of Canada is that we, this vaccination stuff has not been driven, but driven by ideology that, you know, largely anyway, wearing a mask and so on. So, um, we've dodged it here mostly. Um, but, um, but, uh, so back to antibiotics. You know, I just told you earlier that there is, um, you know, a huge need for investment in this area. Um, those investments are going to come from public coffers. Um, legislators will ultimately decide uh, for sure whether or not we're going to have new antibiotics in the future. Um, legislators are, are elected by voters and you know, um, um, and, you know, kind of it begins uh, and ends with, with voters. And, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, to the extent that our, you know, elections can be influenced by um, good and bad information, you know, all that becomes super, super important. So uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just a terrifying time. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're doing a podcast um you know, while I'm thinking about killing my Twitter and Facebook accounts because of because of the uh, the impact of of social media, um, you know, on the susceptibility of the public to um, you know to stuff they read in social media. Uh, I mean, we're living in an age where nobody gets a newspaper anymore. You know, almost nobody reads a newspaper. Um, most people are getting their news from Facebook.
Thinking about that, though, the spread of information through the through public venues like social media and news articles in the realm of research, though, it's it's relatively a slower pace, I would say, compared to like this really quick updating of information. So when it comes to your research, you obviously look at antibiotic resistance in a different light. Instead of choosing to eradicate resistance, at least directly, you're investigating, creating different drug resistant like bacteria or seeing what they're doing what the bacteria are doing for other pathways of drug resistance from the beginning and investigating from there. How does that look with regards to you coming up with this research and going through that timeline of going from your idea all the way to, you know, your results and how the situation changes like outside of the realm of research? I think there is a continuum here and an influence a lot of outside factors. So you know, we're doing the work that we're doing and you're right. I mean, we're, we're plotting away and, and, you know, just trying to contribute to kind of the, the, you know, the, the, the world brain trust in, you know, bacterial physiology, new ways to think about antibiotic drug discovery, uh, you know, et cetera. But if there's ever going to be any uptake of that, then, then, um, you know, we need a healthy way to convert those discoveries into new antibiotics. Um, and that's not something that, you know, university researchers like myself are good at doing. That is, you know, really the realm of the pharmaceutical sector. Um, it's a sector which is, you know, um, dominated it, it by a for-profit paradigm. Uh, and um, so, it, you know, it remains important to me, even as an academic researcher, that, uh, you know, we come up with a solution for the, the um, you know, the business problem. Um, that plagues antibiotics. Um, otherwise, you know, my discoveries are not going to see the light of day. But as a researcher, is there something that you think is particularly of interest, like one of the highlights of your discoveries, um, not in relationship with how that translates clinically, but just in regards to your field of research? Uh, I mean, we sorted out some genetics and in, in cell surface biosynthesis um, of uh, of gram-positive bacteria, particularly um, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, um, that you know that caught the attention of um, of folks at uh, Merkin Company some years ago, and they ended up you know really seizing on all of the formative work that we did to um, to launch a major program um, in uh, in drug discovery, looking for um, uh, antibiotics that would target. Uh, that biosynthetic process, you know, using all of the um, genetics and assays that we had developed. So, um, you know, that's probably a, that's certainly a high watermark, I think, from, um, you know, maybe the, the 2000 to 2010 decade. Um, <clears throat> you know, more recently, we've, um, you know, we've, we've, I think, made, made a mark in this idea of trying to think about um, you know, going, pia going past uh, uh, rich microbiological media and alternate um, growth conditions, kind of widening our, our interpretation of, of uh, you know, what makes for a good drug target. Um, that, is, that is surely kind of influencing as well, I think, um, those in the private sector that are doing this kind of drug discovery. Um, one of the most trivial inventions, I think, that has come out of my lab recently is a discovery that um, bicarbonate, um, which is the active ingredient in uh, baking soda, you may know, 
um, is a really important um, modulator of antibiotic activity. Um, and it turns out that bicarbonate is in, um, in, the extra, in all extracellular spaces in our bodies. And so this is something that's going on whenever you take a uh, systemic antibiotic is that there's an effect of bicarbonate um, on that antibiotic. Turns out it's a really complicated phenomenon that's about the bioenergetics of the cell membrane of a bacterium. Um, but the long and short of it is that um, certain antibiotics are wildly potentiated by bicarbonate. That means they're way more effective um, uh, you know, inside of us than we would understand by looking at their activity on a dish um, you know, and for example, we've shown that, um, antibiotics like azithromycin are, um, hugely potentiated by bicarbonate, um, are, are, are really very, very active against, you know, what we otherwise understand to be azithromycin resistant strains. Um, you know, those are the, those are the, you know, the genetically encoded resistance that I was talking about earlier. There are also way more active and probably quite effective uh, on strains that are thought to be intrinsically um, resistant to azithromycin. So that was really, you know, one of the things that, that we've done recently, which it just sounds like something trivial, you know, why wouldn't anybody have looked at this before? Um, and, um, uh, but the discovery of this bicarb effect um, is, yeah, pretty exciting. And I, and I, and I predict it's gonna have a big impact um, on antibiotic drug discovery in the future. That's really fascinating to think that something like, you know, bicarbonate, things like that, that don't seem directly or inherently like related. It's just that you found that relationship between antibiotic resistance. And I was just wondering along that topic for, for something like that, uh, where previously uh, bacterial resistant strains of bacteria that you said could, um, the effects of antibiotics could be potentiated through um, the presence of bicarbonate. Is this sort of like another avenue to just explore in general, like uh, things that can potentiate effects of current uh, drugs that are already being used instead of trying to find new alternatives, maybe finding ways to improve efficacy of like existing drugs to combat that issue of resistance? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, honestly, I think bicarbonate is part of our innate immunity. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of not been discovered before. Like it's not, it's not been thought of in that context. And, and, you know, with our, it's clearly, it's clearly having a significant impact on the bioenergetics of the bacterium. And that alters how much antibiotic actually gets into the bacterium. So it's really, um, interesting. And, And I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, bicarb is, is, you know, is our, is the buffer of choice for the human body. Um, you know, and it also has these, um, effects, um, uh, that, that, um, enhance some of the, the antibacterials that we have. It also enhances other elements of our innate immunity. So we've looked at things like cationic peptides, uh, even lysozyme, right. Which is sort of a part of our innate immunity. Um, it's, um, the actions of these things are increased by bicarb. Um, we've also done work, um, the work inside where we looked at, you know, um, compounds that were active on bacteria inside a macrophage that revealed that, that the intrinsic resistance that we sometimes see for, um, bugs in that instance, uh, it was salmonella, um, are, are significantly reduced inside of a macrophage. So again, it's this idea that, you know, what's going on in a dish may not be what's going on, you know, at the site of treatment. 
And so, um, yeah, it kind of changes your thinking about what the possible synergies are. So, you know, can we, can we design antibiotics that would collaborate with our innate immunity systems, um, right. To, um, to get the job done. And it, it's something again, that, you know, there's just, there's really been, if, if that's ever happened, it's been completely accidental. Yeah. It's really hard to like translate a sort of like an in vitro theory into an in vivo sort of practice. Um, other than like using mice or other sort of similar animal or mammal models, are there any other sort of ways to bridge the gap between the in vitro and in vivo sort of environment? Yeah. And it's something we're, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about, um, uh, maybe I'll give you one, maybe with, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll answer a slightly different question, Frank. Um, um, cause if we thought there was a problem going from in vitro to in vivo in an animal, there's also often a problem in going from the animal to the human. Um, and, and, you know, in, in things like cancer research, you know, everyone just accepts this as, as you know, as just everyday truth that, that most of the animal models of, of, uh, of cancer, you know, don't predict, um, uh, are really poorly, um, predictive of, of what goes on in the human for a hundred years, um, antibiotic drug discoverers have looked at, you know, the in vitro to the animal, to the human as this, um, you know, this thing that works incredibly well, um, more uh, recently, uh, um, some folks in my lab, uh, led mostly by Lindsay Carefrey um, in my group as a, a senior PhD student, have been investigating biotin synthesis. Um, this is uh, yeah, vitamin B7 as a as a uh, as a route to um, to new antibiotics, and um, we kind of noted that no one's kind of ever looked at this before. It's accepted as a target in TB, but not. Um, you know, in other bacteria. In fact, it's, it's sort of been dismissed as something which is dispensable um, for growth in an animal. In other words, that um, bugs that are growing and haven't infected an animal can get their, their, their biotin vitamin um, from the animal. And there's, there's really no um, need uh, to synthesize that vitamin. Uh, it's a vitamin which is crucial ultimately for uh, fatty acid synthesis. Um, and, you know, Lindsay dug into this and discovered that, um, uh, you know, mice that we would house in our animal housing are, they're fed this incredibly rich, uh, gruel. Um, and, uh, it turns out their, their, their biotin levels are way higher, um, than we would see in humans. Um, and if you take that further, she was able to show that, you know, for example, growth of, um, biotin deficient mutants of bacteria, they just don't grow. Um, in human blood, um, um, whereas they're, you know, they do quite well in, in blood that we would get from a mouse that's, um, you know, that's raised in our animal facilities. So, uh, yeah, a real, a real interesting example, I think, of how not only do we fail sometimes in making that transition between a dish and a mouse, but also um, between a mouse and a human. Um, ultimately, Lindsay came up with a, a, a mouse model infection in which the the mouse has less biotin. And so it's opened up a whole new um, avenue of drug discovery, um, you know, where we have a good now um, uh, animal model of infection. Um, but maybe to get back to your, um, your question, I think, you know, and, and we're, uh, you know, we're also mindful, I think about, you know, the, 
responsible use of, of animals and animal research. And we, you know, we'd like to do these experiments as little as possible. Uh, and so you'd like to have really good in vitro models, right? They would predict what's going to happen in an animal. Um, it's of course necessary to do the animal research in order to make a drug that's sort of, that's kind of where things are right now. But, but there are, there is kind of exciting stuff happening in the area of things like organoids um, uh, that can be created, you know, from things like stem cells um, to create again, host mimicking, um, you know, in vitro uh, conditions. And I do think that um, stuff like organites are, are definitely um, the future. You, you'd obviously be building, you know, organites that would mimic a specific site of infection. Um, and um, uh, I think that's a, a really exciting new field for, uh, for infectious disease. Wow. I think hearing that we were, we were originally going to end off with a slightly less positive final question of, you know, if we didn't have a scalable solution to antibiotic resistance and the whole superbug issues um, becoming a reality in the future, what would we do? But hearing that, it just opens up a lot of avenues, right? Like all of those um, molecules that are even found within our own body that are such an important target for research um, that you've talked about, like the bicarbonate, the biotin, and organoids, like those new models to do research on. So I guess for us, that, that was just something that was really eye-opening. Yeah, like that was a nice way to end off rather than our more <laughs> negative undertone. Yeah. So we just want to say thank you so much for your time, Dr. Brown. It's been such a pleasure to learn from you and hear your perspectives on this topic. And we'd love to keep in touch in the future, given that antibiotic resistance is such a growing field, unfortunately. So we wish you the best in your research and we want to say thank you once again. Yeah, my pleasure. And, and all the best to you folks. Um, uh, you know, thanks for your interest and uh, um, your hard work on this. It's um, uh, and, and, and please go out there and communicate the um, communicate the truth. <laughs> Do your best to uh, to keep to keep uh, to keep misinformation at bay. 